Exodus chapter 20, second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. As this morning, we are going to start into our sermon series on the Ten Commandments, which we just heard read to us. And as you are turning there, um, I suspect that some of you are maybe feeling a little uncomfortable turning here. Uh, not only are we turning to the Old Testament, and I mean, you know, we've, we've, we go to the Old Testament some, but we preach a lot of times out of the New Testament. Uh, so there might be some discomfort in turning to the left that far in your Bible. Um, and especially the fact that we're not turning to the Psalms or the Proverbs or even an Old Testament narrative, a story, but we're turning to a part of Scripture that is called the law. And that's how I usually, when I hear it read or see it, that's, what, that's how it sounds in my head. I don't know how you guys are, but when I see it, I hear it as the law. And I suspect that the law, that it, that it is one of the parts of the Bible that you feel the most uncomfortable with, right up there with the book of Revelation, is it, probably the law. And then, so it's important for us to understand that there are different, different genre types in the, throughout our Bibles, throughout the scripture, different types of writings in the Bible. And the genre that we will be in throughout the summer in Exodus 20 is a genre called the law. And I'm hoping that as we go this summer, that, that, that booming law sound will be, be, be more and more of a delight to you, that it'll be the law, the law. And, and this genre type in our Bible, it's found in parts of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, parts of our Bible that a lot of us get hung up in and are read through the Bible in a year. This is, this is the part that really gets difficult. It gets uncomfortable. And if we're honest, we many times just, we really don't know what to do with this. I mean, are these, are these still for us today? Are these applicable to our lives today? Or do we just throw these out now because Jesus has come and Jesus has changed things and, and, and now we, we have no use for these? I mean, I mean, can we just uh, lighten our Bibles a little bit? I mean, I, I usually carry around my study Bible all week with me. Would, would it just be a little easier on my back if we just take out the Old Testament law? Should we do that? And what's, what was interesting and surprising to me was that really it's, it, it's been recently that we've started to have this discomfort and uneasiness and unsure of, of how to handle the law of God. Um, as, as I was looking through just church history and, and the way the church has used the Ten Commandments in our worship and in devotional life and in discipleship, the Ten Commandments throughout the years, they've, they've actually been a pretty big part of Christian worship. Uh, that, that, it, it was a part of, of most worship uh, gatherings where the Ten commandments would be read. Um, it was part of the discipleship life of the church. When, when someone came into a church and, and became a believer and received the gospel, they were typically taught the Apostles' Creed so that they knew what they believed and could share it in a concise way with others. They were taught the Lord's Prayer so they knew how to prayer and ha- pray and how to model prayer. And they were taught then uh, the Ten Commandments so that they knew how to live and how to love and, and these things that God has, has, the way that God has designed life to work best in his world. But recently, I think it's, it's safe to say we, we've all, especially in, in kind of modern American evangelicalism, we, we've become uncomfortable with the law and I want to acknowledge that right, right from the start. I want to acknowledge the fact that even, even I have an uneasiness in preaching through the law to you because I don't know how you're going to take that or what you're going to assume of me or, or how this is going to go. But church, I think one of the main reasons that most Christians, including myself, maybe even feel uncomfortable with the law And the reason we feel uncomfortable with the law being part of our worship or discipleship or devotional life is because many of us in modern times, we are so afraid of being labeled a specific word that no one wants to be called. There's a word that no modern American evangelical gospel-centered Christian wants to be called. Just like in the corporate world and political world, I mean, there's certain words no one wants to be called, right? No one wants to be called or labeled a racist or anything like that. But in a similar way, no modern American evangelical gospel-centered Christian wants to be called 
a legalist. I mean, we are afraid of this. I do not want to be called this, and I don't want to become it, and I don't want you to become one either. But we're afraid of being called this. I mean, call me lazy, call me a fool, call me lukewarm, but don't call me a legalist, right? And the reason I share that is because I think a fear of that has kept us from really enjoying a large portion of scripture that God has given us. And it is this fear of being called a legalist that it's, it's kept us from reading God's law. It's kept us from trying to understand God's law, what it, what it means in its context, what it means for us today. But the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, what, what does he write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17? Verses probably many of you have, have memorized. He writes, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, what does Paul have in mind when he writes all scripture? I mean, at the time that he writes this, there were probably some circulating letters and gospels of the New Testament, but, but what he mainly has in mind when he writes this to Timothy, he's mainly thinking about the Old Testament. He's thinking about the law and the prophets. Do we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching? If we believe that, then I think we can't be afraid of preaching through the law. And so even though I am a little fearful to preach the law, we're going to preach through the law. What else does the Apostle Paul write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.8? He says, now we know that the law is good. Can we say that? Now he clarifies, he says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And so fear not, church. Uh, we are going to hopefully, by God's grace, explain how as Christians we use the law rightly and lawfully and not become legalistic in our hearts. But my question for you is, can you say like Paul did, that you believe and know that the law is good? I don't know if I could always say that or believe that, that the law is good. Can you say like the Apostle Paul said to the church in Rome, in Romans 7, verse 22, he says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I think most of us hear, hear verses like that, and it's just sounds so strange to us, so unfamiliar. We can't relate to that, can't understand that. And church, I want God to help you and I these next 11 weeks to delight in all of Scripture because it is all breathed out by God and it is all God's grace to you, and that includes the law. I want us to be able to delight in every portion of Scripture that we have. And we will hopefully also see that we can celebrate and enjoy Jesus just as much as we study the law as we could when we studied Romans. It might take a little bit more digging, a little bit more work, a little bit more kind of bearing with, with the text and working through things, but we will hopefully see that we can celebrate and enjoy Jesus just as much as we study God's law as we did as we were going through the, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. And so I realize you might not be convinced of that yet, but give me 11 weeks to convince you and get you on, on the team. And so this week, we're going to give an intro week, really really set the table for, for what's to come. Uh, and, and, and then next week, we'll start into the commands. And uh, we'll just take one week per command. And, and that'll be um, kind of the next 11 sermons that, that I preach to you as we go through each of these 10 commandments. Which even that phrase, the 10 commandments... Um, it's, it's not, you'll notice as, uh, as we look at the slides, the, the title slide, um, the Ten Commandments is not what I've titled our sermon series, um, even though I know that's what we're all familiar with these verses being called. And the reason that I'm not calling it the Ten Commandments is because that's not what Scripture calls these. Uh, the Ten Commandments are just in our English translations, but these are called in Hebrew the Ten Words, the Ten Words, the Ten Words from God. 
And in light of what we learn from Jesus and the Apostle Paul later in the New Testament, I've titled this series, 10 Good Words from Our Father. 10 Good Words from Our Father. And I believe that throughout these 11 sermons, if the Lord helps you to understand and believe that these are in fact 10 good words from our Father, then I believe that could change your life and open up to you a large portion of Scripture that up until now you have either ignored or not understood. And so I'm excited. I'm excited for this summer. I'm excited for these 10 good words from God. And so I'll intro this morning these 10 good words from our Father in three sections, okay? Uh, The first section this morning is going to be that the law and the gospel are not enemies. That's what I want us to see first, that the law and the gospel are not enemies. They're not even frenemies, okay? If you're familiar with that term, they're not frenemies. They are not at odds with each other, okay? They have different roles, but they're in a good relationship. I mean, we might think that they both could do better or that they just aren't really like, you know, lining up together and they're not getting each other, but they actually have a good relationship. They do. They do. The law and the gospel are not enemies. And and in this section, we're going to define what real legalism is because it is a real thing. Uh, We'll touch on what it means to not be under the law and how the law then and the gospel relate to one another. They're in a good relationship with one another, okay? And then this morning, we're going to see the uniqueness of these 10 good words from our Father. So there are 613 laws in the Pentateuch, the first five books of our our Bibles, and we need to understand what sets these 10 words apart from the rest, what makes them unique. And then finally, this morning, we'll see the context of where we are picking things up in Exodus 20. We're kind of parachuting into a story here, into Exodus 20, and we need to understand the context before we start just getting these these commands and these good words from God. And by understanding the context, I believe we will see how these 10 good words can guide us in how to live and how to love wisely and freely as children of God. So let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help in this. Father, we, we thank you for uh, this summer and, and uh, Lord, the, the refreshing time that it is for many is, is just schedules are different and we're able, some of us are able to take, take some trips and take a break from school to enjoy uh, the outdoors. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for, for a time in our worship gatherings this summer to, to look at your law, to hear these 10 good words. From you. And so I ask God that you would guide us in your truth, that you would keep us from error, that you would, um, Lord, protect us from um, maybe bringing in past uh, uh, baggage or wrong teaching into, the, the, into these, this passage. We ask, Lord, that we would sit humbly before your word and that your word, that through your word, Lord, you would change us and transform us. May we come to know and believe this summer that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That the testimony of you, O Lord, is sure, making wise the simple. That the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That the commandments of the Lord you are pure, enlightening the eyes. That the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. That the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. O Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. We ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Okay, so first, so... I, I, th- this is more of an introductory sermon, okay? There's going to be a little bit more teaching and instruction so that next week we jump into the commands and there'll be a bit more preaching and proclamation of the word. But we, we need, to, need to set the table first. And so the first thing we need to see is that the law and the gospel are not enemies. So when we hear commands from God, when we hear God's word, when we hear God's law, we typically respond with one of three heart postures. 
Okay, these are the typical responses of the heart when you hear a command from God. The, the first heart posture is a licentious heart. All right, and what I mean by a licentious heart is a heart that feels like it has a license to sin. Okay, uh, we hear, we, we've heard the gospel, we've heard the good news that we're saved not by our good works, but only by grace through faith in Jesus. And therefore now when we hear a command, we think, well, that doesn't matter for us. I mean, we've been justified, we're getting into heaven, God, thank you for the salvation, but we will take it from here. That is a licentious heart when they hear the command of God. A licentious heart could care less about the law of God. They probably, you, may, you maybe have already checked out on me for these next 11 weeks. But another option when we hear a command from God is that we could respond with a legalistic heart. And this is a heart that believes that its approval from God is dependent upon its obedience to the command. And therefore, they, this, this, this type of person and this type of heart posture sees obedience to a command as a way to justify themselves before God. And so that term legalism, it does get thrown around a lot as an insult in our circles. But true legalism is out there. And it's not someone who just delights in the law of God or thinks that the law is good. It's not someone who reads the Ten Commandments in a worship gathering. But an actual legalistic heart is someone who views their obedience to God's commands as their way to be justified by God and declared right before him. And hopefully after spending the last year and a half in Romans, you know that we are not justified by the law, church. No, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so when we hear God's law, we typically respond with one of three heart postures, either a licentious heart, a legalistic heart, or a heart that is believing the gospel. And church, may we be a people with hearts that are believing the gospel. A person believing the gospel hears the commands of God and sees in them how far they have fallen short of God's holiness and God's will. They see that they have not kept the law. And church, no one has. You will see this likely to a greater degree than you've ever seen before, just how much we've missed the mark that God has called us to. But a heart that is believing the gospel, the law drives us to see our need of a Savior. And it is through faith in Christ then that we are united to Christ. And Jesus Christ was the only one who ever perfectly kept the law. You see, we didn't just need a lawyer to come argue our case before God. We needed a representative. We needed a truly obedient Israelite to come and obey the law on our behalf. And that's what Jesus did. And it is through our union with Christ that we receive all the blessings from God, including forgiveness for our sin and freedom from our sin. Because in Christ, we now receive the Holy Spirit who will now help empower us to obey the commands of God. Pastor Bob Thune, in his book, The Gospel-Centered Life, which is a book I've referred to you often, it's in our bookstore, um, as we're in a season of some city groups, uh, city groups starting to take a break. If you, want, if you wanted a, a shorter book to go through with someone uh, this summer, it would be a great book to go through with. If you're discipling someone, it would be a great material to go, go through with. Um, but in it, he, he writes, Pastor Bob Thune, he writes, the law drives us to the gospel, and the gospel frees us to obey the law. Maybe one of the most concise, to the point, helpful sentences that help us understand the relationship between the law and the gospel. The law drives us to the gospel and the gospel frees us to obey the law. You see, Jesus came to fulfill the law, but not to do away with the law. Christ is the end of the law for our justification but the law is still present for our joy. We are no longer under the judgment or the curse of the law, but the Holy Spirit has now written the law on our hearts that we would delight in it. The law and the gospel are not enemies. They are friends. 
The law drives us to the gospel. The gospel frees us to obey the law. And more specifically, this is how it, the law does that. Okay, so I think Pastor Bob Thune's got a great big picture sentence there. But more specifically, this is how the law does that. This is now the role of the law. All right, obedience to the law no longer justifies us. Faith in Christ and his obedience is, is, is what justifies us. But this is now the role of the law in a believer's life. And if you're taking notes, write, write these down. This is kind of all still part of our big overall first section that we're going through. But now the role of the law in a believer's life is this. Number one, the law of God reveals to us the heart of our Father. The law of God reveals to us the heart of our Father. When we are not frantically trying to obey these commands to justify ourselves, and when we are not sitting under the despairing condemnation of these commands because we are in Christ, we can take a step back and see the heart of our Father that is revealed to us in his law. I mean, think about this. Don't the rules that I give to my boys, don't they reflect my heart? Can't you learn something about me to hear about the rules that I give my boys? So, if, for example, one rule that we have for the boys uh, is that I really don't like them to run around in the yard barefoot. Okay, I usually like put shoes on, put shoes on, put shoes on. And that's not uh, kids. That's not God's law. That's just that's just me putting a rule in for my family. Okay. Um, now, the reason that I have that rule, you can learn something about me, is that I used to work in in the emergency department. And one of the least favorite things that I would see in the summer and saw all summer were lacerations on the bottom of kids feet. And um, if you know or have ever experienced that, it's a difficult situation because it's really difficult to numb the bottom of a kid's foot with kind of the numbing cream. And so if you're going to stitch it up or clean it or do anything, you're going to have to stick a needle in it to numb it. And getting a needle in the bottom of your foot is not a pleasant experience. And I'm sorry to even make some of you squirm or uncomfortable to hear about that. But it was just one of my least favorite things. You know, the kids screaming, the, the parents are fainting. It's just not, it's not fun. Just put shoes on, you know, put you, if you're not in a pool, like just put shoes on. And so that rule that I have for my boys, I have loosened up on because it's been now a little while since I've been in the ER and I'm not as traumatized by that. But that rule that I had given them, you can learn something about me. It's, it's, it's not that I don't want them to enjoy the feeling of grass on their bare feet. It's because I don't want to stick a needle in the bottom of their foot. Or maybe a better example is uh, when I tell them to look both ways before crossing the street. See my heart in that. I value their life. And I know their physical bodies have limits. And I know that their physical bodies are no match for a car coming 30 miles per hour. You see what you can learn about me through the rules that I've given my boys? When I tell them to respect their mother, Brit, that's not me trying to restrict their freedom or demean them. That's me showing them how much I value Brit. And it's showing them that I know for them, it's going to be a blessing for them in life if they learn from a young age to cherish their mom and to honor and protect and care for the women in their lives and to one day cherish their future wives. That's going to be a blessing for them. Some people could interpret that and be like, oh man, you're being so oppressive and restrictive to them. No, no, no. It's going to be a blessing for them. When we see that God in his law, doesn't want us to murder one another. We learn something about his heart, don't we? And as you read through these commandments, these next 11 weeks, see God's heart in these. I mean, one of the reasons we don't like to talk about these commandments is because most of them are written in more of a negative way, right? It's like, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. But what we will see is that with each negative command comes an implied positive command. So we'll, we'll hit on you shall not murder, but in that God is also saying you should value life like I do. 
And we'll see then that Jesus helps us when he comes. He elaborates on these commands. He gets to the heart of it. He, he helps us see the heart of our Father in these commands. So we'll be in these 10 good words. We'll be in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be in teachings from Jesus because he helps even more show the heart of our Father. But it's a little tougher work because we're going to have to get over our sinful inclination that doesn't like commands. We don't like anyone telling us you shall not do something. But, oh, church, we will be blessed to see the heart of our Father in these 10 good words. Okay, so the, the law of God reveals to us the heart of our Father, the role of the law in the believer's life. Secondly, the law of God exposes, exposes to us the sin in our own heart. Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 7, 7. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. If it wasn't for God's law, we wouldn't know what sin is. We wouldn't know what is right and what is wrong. And we live in a day and age of just moral relativism and and widespread confusion as to what is right and what is wrong and who's to say. But the law, it grounds us, it, 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 it shows us. I've actually heard there's, there's been um, um, an increased amount of conversion to, to Islam in some parts because people are saying, well, at least they clearly have a right and wrong. Like, at least there's some grounding for some of these things. We live in a culture that there's just so, so, so much confusion. We don't know where to be grounded, and, and we don't know what, what, who, and really, who, who and what really determines what is right and what is wrong. But God's law serves us in that way, and it then shows us like a mirror. It's like looking into a mirror, and it exposes the sin that is still present in our hearts. But then thanks be to God, thirdly, the role of the law uh, in the believer's life, the law should then serve to lead us to Christ, like we've already discussed, because he is the only true law keeper. And then fourthly, the role of the, the law in a believer's life, would be after we've been led to Christ, then freed and empowered by the grace of God through Christ, the law guides us in how to live and how to love wisely and freely as children of God. The law guides us in how to live and love wisely and freely as children of God. Because church, listen, most Christians do know how Jesus summarizes the law to us. Jesus said, love God and love others, right? These are the two two great commandments. Everything rests on this. He gets to the heart of it. He's getting to the heart of the law. But the question for us who live in an age of moral relativism and who are largely unfamiliar with the law, the question is, how do we love God and love others? Do we get to make that up on our own? I mean, over the last few years, people have justified all sorts of things because of love your neighbor as yourself. So do we get to make that stuff up? Do we get to decide what loving our neighbor is? Do we get to decide how we are to love God? I mean, everyone agrees with the word that we should love. No one, no one in our culture is going to push back on that. We, we have signs all around town that, you know, the, the love more signs. We have people engaging in sexual activity with whoever they want, saying that love is love. But you see, it is the law of God that shows us how to love God and how to love our neighbors. For example, those of you who are married, you at some point have probably had to learn how your spouse feels loved. And you've had to learn how they want you to show love to them. You don't always get to just like make that up on your own. You know, it's not as if uh, Brit feels most loved when I spend the whole day watching football and laying on the couch. Like, I don't get to just make that up and decide, I'm loving Brittany through this. This is how I want to show my love to her, through watching football all day and laying on the couch. 
No, what I have learned from Brit is that she feels most loved with, with small acts of, of service and kindness. She, she doesn't necessarily like all the words of affirmation. I mean, I can compliment her all the time, um, and I could, I could praise her all the time. I could, uh, you know, use the, the platform that you guys give me every Sunday to just talk about her all the time and score some points with her. Uh, but that actually doesn't work, so that's not what I'm doing right now, and she's not even in here, okay? Uh, I could, I could get her expensive gifts. I could do all these things. But actually, she feels most loved when I go out of my way to do a, a, a small thing, a small cleanup thing in the kitchen that, that makes her day a bit easier. She, she loves when I do just a small way to, to serve her and the boys in a way that she wasn't expecting or even, you know, she, she wasn't expecting me to do, but I did. She feels most loved in that. Now, church, listen, God has not left it a mystery about how to love him and others. I mean, some of our, it's not a perfect illustration because some of our spouses are a little bit of a mystery. We're not, we're still figuring it out. Even later into marriage, still figuring out how to love one another. God has not left it a mystery. The first four of the 10 commandments get us way down the road and show us how to love God and how he wants us to love him. The next six show us how to love our neighbor. We don't, we don't have to just make that up. We don't get to make that up. We shouldn't just make that up. And so this is the role of the law in a believer's life. I'll summarize what we've just said. Number one, the law of God reveals to us the heart of our Father. The law re- reveals to us the sin in our own heart. The law leads us to Christ. And then freed and empowered by the grace of God through Christ, the law guides us in how to live and love wisely and freely as children of God. Now that's point, that's point one, and I realize that did take a good chunk of time. I promise the last two points were going to go quicker. But we have to see first that the law and the gospel are not enemies, and they should not be enemies in your life or in your understanding of God's word. The law and the gospel are not enemies. But now the question is, is, is all of the law the same? Because there are 613 laws in the law portion of scripture. Are these all for us? Because some of these are strange, for honest, right? Some of them, some of them get weird. And it's like, okay, is this, is it, are all 613 for us? So now let's try to understand the uniqueness of these 10 good words from our Father. And let's do so by looking at Exodus 20 now, chapter 1. Or sorry, Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. Let's stop there. As we try to understand the uniqueness of these 10 good words from our Father, we have to understand that these words were spoken directly by God to the people. And if you read later in Exodus 20, we won't talk about it this week, but you can see after they receive it, I mean, it's a frightening experience. Uh, uh, thunder, lightning, the people are fearful. They're, you know, we, we all long to hear God's voice. They're like, hey, we, we've heard enough. Why don't you just talk to Moses? Moses, talk to us. This is a frightening experience. Now, we learned in Hebrews that we no longer have come to Mount Sinai. We're not standing on the same ground that they're standing in. We've come to now, uh, we, we stand in Christ. We don't need to be fearful of these words coming, up, coming to us from God, all right? We stand in Christ. But these words were, were spoken directly by God to the people. The rest of the law was relayed from Moses to the people, and Moses wrote it down. But these 10 words were spoken by God directly to the people, and then God himself wrote these down on stone. The Bible says with his own finger. This is is God's working in the stone. Exodus 32, 16 says, The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on these tablets. These 10 good words are absolutely unique and set apart in how they came to the people. God spoke them and God wrote them. And the rest of the law, which then starts in Exodus 21, is what is called the book of the covenant. 
and it gives practical application to these 10 commands that were just given. And so maybe it's helpful for a moment to just stop. Let's pause here for a second and let me share with you the three uses of the law in case you've never heard this or aren't familiar with this or have forgotten it, okay? So you first, we first have God's moral law. It's the first use of the law, God's moral law, which is primarily what we see in the Ten Commandments, which I believe is very much applicable for a believer's life, not for their justification, but for their joy. And I, and, I, and I realize, again, just wait till we get to the, the one about the Sabbath. I realize we'll, we'll, we'll talk through that. But God's moral law, which is primarily what we see in the Ten Commandments, I believe is very much applicable to a believer's life, not for our justification, but for our joy. It's the moral law. You then have the civil law. Okay, the civil law, which starting in Exodus 21, you start to see God giving specific rules and regulations for how specific situations should be handled in their context with this specific nation. And while these might not be directly applicable to us, there is still great wisdom and insight that we can draw from them because they are all based upon God's moral law given in these 10 good words, as well as our God, the God who gave them has not changed. And so really you could start reading the rest of Exodus, and this might be a helpful thing for you to do. And as he's giving all these civil laws to the nation of Israel, you could put in the margin which commandment they are built upon, you know, which, which moral law of God this is being founded upon and playing out in a practical example. So, for example, the sixth commandment is you shall not murder, okay? Later in Exodus 21, this moral law is now going to inform Israel's civil law, okay? If two men are fighting and one hits a pregnant woman, if the child is born and is unharmed, then that man who hit her should be fined. If the child comes out and is dead, that man should be executed, Now, I'm not saying that civil law that God gave the nation of Israel should be exactly our civil law. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is even in that civil law, don't we learn something about God? Don't we learn something about how he values life? Don't we learn something about how he views an unborn child? But most of us are just ignorant that that stuff like that's even there because it's the law. We don't know what to do with it. We don't want to touch it. We don't want to be a legalist. Later in chapter 22, part of their civil law is that if a thief breaks in at night and you wake up and you're unsure about his his intention and you kill him, in their civil law, there is no penalty for that because it is assumed he is there to murder you and you have stopped him murdering and you are living according to God's will. But if he breaks in during the day and it's clear he's only trying to steal your ox, and you kill him over that, then you are put to death. God didn't want anyone killing anyone over stealing an ox. Instead, report him to the authorities, and he owes you double for what, you were, what he was trying to take from you. Now, again, <laughs> I'm not saying that that is the exact civil law we should all live by, Okay. But I'm saying, isn't there some, some, can't we draw some insight from that? Can't we draw some wisdom from that? Can't we see maybe, I mean, I, I feel like we're always asking each other, trying to get wisdom on certain life situations. It's like, can't we draw some wisdom and insight from, from God's laws? Even his civil laws that he gave to a specific nation in a specific context? The God who gave this law has not changed. And we can learn much and draw much wisdom from the law and see how it all ties back to the moral law of God, which is always in effect, whether you recognize it or not. God's moral law, and it's, it's like gravity, okay? You can't see it, but it's, it's there. It's always in effect. Whether it's written on a building or not, people are going to be measured and judged, judged by it, right? This is God, God's law is in effect. There are some inescapable things in life that we cannot escape from, and God's moral law is one of those. So we have God's moral law. We have, God's, we have the civil law, right, for a specific nation in a specific context. The third use of the law is the ceremonial law, which is all about the sacrificial system and how we approach God, uh, you know, specific instructions for the priests and cleanliness laws. 
And we see and find all these laws fulfillment in Christ. Which is why we don't practice all the sacrifices and all the cleanliness laws. It's because Christ was the once and for all sacrifice for sins and he has cleansed his people. But even as you read it, even as you read how the priests are supposed to approach God, even you learn some things about the Lord in that. Your appreciation and gratitude for what Christ has accomplished for you grows in that. And so church, don't be intimidated by the law. Understand it as the moral, the civil, or the ceremonial part of the law, but see the uniqueness, the set-apartness of the moral law of God. That these 10 good words our Father spoke to his people are set apart, and they were spoken directly to a people that we have now been grafted into in Christ. In Christ, this has now become part of our family heritage. And so, to summarize so far, we've seen the law and the gospel are not enemies, we've seen the uniqueness of these 10 good words. But now before moving into the first good word next Sunday, let's try to understand the context of where we are picking things up in Exodus chapter 20. It's never ideal to just jump into the middle of a book and not understand the context. And so I would encourage you this week to go and, and read the first 19 chapters of Exodus. I mean, three or four chapters a day, you'll, you'll get there. And uh, even if you're familiar with it, even go and be reminded of the story leading up to this. Okay? The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, but God saw them. God was with them. God raised up Moses, sends him to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. no. Yeah, I really, man, wow. God raises up Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, no. yeah. And then God sends the 10 plagues and declares war on all the Egyptian lowercase g gods with the final one being the death of all the firstborn of the Egyptians, which then causes Pharaoh to finally let the people go. But then he changes his mind as they're going, chases after them, traps them at the Red Sea, and then God miraculously parts the Red Sea. The Israelites pass through on dry ground. The Egyptians go in after them. The waters come back down and drown the Egyptian army. Then they continue in the wilderness, but they have no food to eat. God provides them manna to eat from heaven to, to eat. Miraculously just gives them food off the ground that they eat. It's, it's what they need for the day. He then gives them water from a, a rock to drink from. He gives them victory over Amalek and his army. And now God brings them to Sinai because he's drawing them to himself. And so listen, the most important thing about the context of these commands these 10 good words. It is this. This is simple. This is so simple, and yet it is profound. A child can understand this. So kids, kids, you can understand this context. A child can understand it, but many adults have misunderstood it. And here it is. Are you guys ready? The most important thing to understand about the context of these commands is this. Exodus chapters 1 through 19 come before Exodus 20. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exodus chapters, I've been, I've been taking some seminary classes, okay? I, I don't know, I'm, I'm maybe speaking over you now. Exodus chapters 1 through 19 come before Exodus 20. Just let it, let it sink in a little bit. Look, look, look at verse 2 of Exodus 20. And, and we'll, we'll connect the dots if it's not connecting right now. Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God says, I am Yahweh, the Lord, the self-existent one, the one who created everything in heaven and on earth. And he says, I am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He says, in light of the deliverance I have already accomplished for you, therefore, here are now 10 good words. The context is key. He's not saying, hey, if you obey these 10 commands, then I will deliver you from slavery. He's saying, 
I have delivered you out of slavery. I've brought you to myself. Now here are 10 commands that will be for your good. Kevin DeYoung in his, in his book on the Ten Commandments, he says it in a way I could, I could never, never say. So here it is. We'll leave it up on the screen. He says, the Ten Commandments are not instructions on how to get out of Egypt. They are rules for a free people to stay free. This is why James in the New Testament can call the law the law of liberty. This is why John can say the commands of the law are not burdensome. I've, I've, I've struggled with those verses to, to really connect those and understand this. It's because these commands are not given as a checklist that you check off to get into heaven. This is not an ultimatum. If you do these things, then I will rescue you from Egypt. These words are given to help a free people stay free. They were given to show us how to live and love wisely and freely as children of God. These words are given so that we wouldn't go back to living like slaves. And that's, that's my heart in bringing these 11 sermons to you this summer, church. If you're wanting to get down to the heart of it, of what, why I'm passionate about this and why I want to share this with you, is because as I pray and as I seek the Lord for Franklin City Church and try to discern what we need to hear, this is it. This is what the Spirit's been prompting on my heart leading up to this. It's, it is to tell you guys to not go back to living like slaves. Don't do it. This isn't, this isn't a, check lo- a ch- checkoff list to get you into heaven. This isn't like if you keep these commands, then, then you're going to have a better status here in the church. We're going to think more highly of you or any of these things like this. No. These are 10 good words from our Father that are coming to people who have, who have been justified in Christ and who now God says, hey, don't go back to living like slaves. You see, as a people and as a church, as a society, we will always live by some moral code or law. It's not whether we will have one, it's which one will we have. And God's law was given so that we might live free. But when we reject his law, some other law will come in and take its place and it will be way more oppressive and enslaving to us. Back in Egypt, the law, there was no, no written code of law in Egypt. The law was whatever Pharaoh felt like that day was the law. Can you imagine what it's like to live under a ruler who, who decides right and wrong, good and bad, and, and who's, who gets killed and who doesn't just based on like what he feels like that day? It's oppressive. It's slavery. And in our day, when people reject God's law, they now become slaves to whatever the popular cultural opinion is. The opinion of the majority is now their law, and they have to change their views every few years to try to keep up with it. And they live like slaves in the process. And so this is why I'm, I'm sad and I grieve when things like, you know, the, the Ten Commandments are removed from places. I don't think it's, I, I'm sad and grieved. People have different reasons for why they get up, uh, sad over that. I get sad not because I'm trying to bash people over the head with Ten Commandments. It's because to see them removed from places is a sign that people's hearts have rejected God's law. And I know when people turn from God's law, something way more oppressive steps in to take its place. In America, I've, I've seen numbers in recent years, something like 40,000 new laws are written each year at various levels of our government. 
40,000 new laws we're coming up with every year. And we call God, and we think sometimes think God is oppressive. Humans are the oppressive ones. God essentially gave 10 laws with 600 practical applications for Israel. We make 40,000 new ones each year because we've rejected these 10 good ones from our Father. And so the lie that we believe and that we tell ourselves is that God's laws are restricting our freedoms. And some people find out too late that God's laws were actually given and intended to keep people free. The person who dishonors their father and mother and never learns to honor authority because he wants to be free from every type of authority, that person could very likely find himself a slave to the Department of Corrections. Right? I mean, that's, that's where that heads in a lot of cases. The person who rejects the command not to murder or to not have a murderous, angry heart, they could very likely find themselves a slave to their anger and controlled and ruled by it. Some of you are in danger of living, continue to live like a slave to your anger. I've sat with people in the hospital who wanted one night of freedom from their marriage, and now they are slaves to HIV medications. I've sat with people who wanted financial freedom. Again, it's always freedom that we're wanting, but now they are slaves to their work. The Ten Commandments are not instructions on how to get out of Egypt. They are rules for a free people to stay free. Don't go back to living like slaves, church. And so my question for you to consider this week as we enter into these ten good words from our Father is what are you enslaved to this morning? What are you tempted to go back to that is going to enslave you? God wants you to be free. We want you to be free. And I hope and pray this summer that this summer will be a summer of of freedom for you as we learn to live and love as free children of God. And for those who have never put their faith in Christ, oh, may you see the, the heart and the holiness of God in these commandments. May you see your sinfulness, that you are a lawbreaker, and that even though you deserve punishment and judgment from God, oh, may you look to Christ and see your deliverer, who is ready to lead you out of Egypt, who is ready to be your Passover lamb, who is ready to lead you through the Red Sea, to be your manna and the rock that provides life-giving water who is ready to bring you to God so that you might sit with us at the table of God and enjoy these 10 good words from our Father. And may you, dear church, you who have been freed and empowered by the grace of God through Christ, may you learn to delight in the law of God this summer. May you learn how to live and love wisely and freely as children of God. Let us not go back to living like slaves. Let's pray.